Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello and welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where my guest tells me the five things from their life that they'd like to have in a time capsule. They can pick anything at all from any time in their life, but they must pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to forget. My guest in this episode is Sam Teskey. Sam is an Australian musician and one of the founding members of the Grammy-nominated Australian blues and soul band The Teskey Brothers, with his brother Josh. The Teskey Brothers released their debut album, Half Mile Harvest, in 2017, which was recorded in a studio in their hometown, using vintage equipment to capture an authentic sound, which Sam talks about in this podcast. Mojo magazine described their style as at once retro and exceedingly modern. The album was a critical and commercial success, earning them a loyal following and numerous award nominations, including the Best Blues and Roots album at the 2018 ARIA Awards. They followed up with the album Run Home Slow in 2019, which debuted at number two on the Australian charts. Their new album, The Winding Way, will be released in June, and its first single, Oceans of Emotions, is out now. Throughout their career, Sam has been an integral part of the band's songwriting and production process, often credited as the producer and engineer of their albums. He's known for his skillful guitar playing and soulful solos. But in addition to his work with the Teskey Brothers, Sam has also collaborated with other Australian musicians, and he's produced albums for other artists, such as Melbourne's-based singer-songwriter Emma Donovan. Sam released his debut solo album, Cycles, in 2021, followed by his first solo nationwide tour and a lead single, Love. The Teskey Brothers are currently on tour in the UK and Europe and will be playing the Black Deer Festival and Glastonbury, among others. Check out their website. I was lucky enough to chat to Sam when he was in Bristol. In fact, he was in his car outside the venue that they were going to play that night, having just arrived there. 
I've only done one other recording with someone in their car, and that was with the fantastic Irish comedian Jason Byrne. And what a great episode that was. So, high hopes for this one. Here is the rather lovely Sam Teskey. Um, well, I think we're just parking up pretty soon, so... Okay, mate. I've got Josh here in the car with me as well. We're just rolling up to the venue. Lovely. The car will be a good audio space, do you think? Because um, I'm just going to park the car. Um, it's interesting. I've only ever done one other with somebody in a car. Yeah. But uh, well, I reckon the car is probably going to be the best spot. Okay, mate. Because the venue is always a bit loud. There might be people coming in. And so, so I think the car is and it's a good, quiet sort of um, space as well. So. All right. If you're happy to do that. Yeah. Do you want to do it now? Um, well, I probably should wait until we park. I wish I were in Bristol. I was there last weekend. Oh, right. So I wish I were there. I'd that come along and see it. That would have been yeah. great. We could have done it in person. That's always... Um, Never mind. Oh, yeah, here we are. Just pulled, pulled in now behind the two of us. Lovely. And <laughs> Josh is just wording up the security guard, getting, getting, parking in behind the bus. <laughs> no, that's us. We are the band. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I know. And look at that the poster. Look at the poster. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mate. No, this is reserved for the band. Yeah, no, that's us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Go on, sing me something yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them on the telly. They're much better looking than you. Yeah, yeah. And taller as well, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So the Zoom's recording. Lovely. And I will just get QuickTime up on my computer and press record on that as well. Fantastic. And, That's brilliant. And then, then I'll just do my iPhone voice memo just to be safe. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. Yeah, here we go. Hey, 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 two, 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 yep. All right, cool, that's, that's on recording, yep. Fantastic. I'll, I'll just put, put my iPhone recording on too, just to, to be safe. I'll be pretending about recording as I'm the, a recording engineer. So Yeah, I, quite, I, indeed. You're the best so far, I can say that, Sam. Oh, great. <laughs> so, Sam, it's really good of you to do this. There you are sitting in your car, and you've just arrived in Bristol at the venue that you're going to perform at tonight, and you find the yep. time to talk to me. It's really sweet oh. of you. Of course. Thank you for finding the time to talk to me. I've been listening to music. I really like it. I really love you and Josh together, the Tusky Brothers. You know, that's uh, it's an extraordinary thing to do because, first of all, it's such memorable and classic blues that every time you start anything, your audience or an audience hasn't heard it before goes, oh, I know this. Yeah, this is. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah. And those chords from the classic blues songs are so memorable. Yeah. That there's hardly one you can pick without, to an extent, reminding people of something. But you overcome that. Yeah, I think going along our style of music, the, the style that we play, it's so hard not to just uh, delve into those classic little things that, that you hear on these old recordings. Mm. But as hard as you can try to make something sound like something else you know like mm. as you know we want to make it sound like this classic old recording you can never quite achieve that so we'll always have our own character our own spin on it there's quite a lot of beauty to that just just the fact that you can always have you can't get yourself out of the recordings really so yeah but it's a beautifully contained thing you and your brother and then there's the band and it's very tight and it's how many are you about seven yeah the band's about well actually we've got an eight piece on this tour right on the new record we found we had a lot of piano and organ both mm. together so we splashed out and brought a, a piano player as well as an organ player and we've <laughs> got we've got olaf scott who who's um who's always played organ with us and he's he's a great player and and we've played with many players all around the world it's it's you know he's hard to top his organ playing it's, it's uh, phenomenal yeah 
So I was very interested to read that you both went off to a Steiner school. Do you put that down to the thing that sort of, in a way, opened you up to go, well, let's be a band? Why not? I think that there definitely was a lot of influence there. We we had some great teachers at that school mm. that really influenced our early genres of music, I guess. We we had one teacher in particular, an old teacher called uh, Sam Lyndon Smith, and mm. he used to play in a band called The Honey Drippers, um, which is an Australian blues soul band. They never recorded anything, but uh-huh. they were quite a well-known local band. Mm. And, you know, back in that day, it was hard to get a record cut. So, unfortunately, they, they never really got a record done. But we just we just know we've always seen their music and, like, we've grown up watching them play. Mm. And so, in a way, we've kind of, all our influences have come from other people kind of doing these, these classic tunes you know like all this classic soul stuff that we yeah. never really originally heard all this classic soul stuff um we just actually got down to it and um heard hold on a second i think um i think we have to move the car <laughs> we'll just do a um stop yeah i oh, get your phone all good i think it's all good it's good. I feel like James Corden. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a carpool karaoke or something. Yeah, no, no. I'm tempted to start a song up. Well, I thought this was a great time capsule, you know, what I'm, <laughs> what I'm in right now. I thought, yeah. I thought, well, this is like a car. This is like my time capsule. And I'm, and unfortunately, I don't have all the things that I want to bring in, in the time capsule with me. But yeah, anyway, what I was saying before about um, Sam Lyndon Smith um, and in his band, The Honey Drippers, is that we, we've grown up watching all these bands all, that have been doing their versions of blues and soul. And so mm. we've kind of had the influences once removed in, in a way. You know, yeah. And later on, we, we, we discovered all these other artists like Ernest Redding and Wilson Pickett. But yeah, growing up, mm. um, we just were like hearing these other guys, like Jeff Atchison is another Australian blues artist that, that we used to watch all the time and really influenced by his showmanship and his performance. And... You know, later to find out that all these guys, you know, they're influenced by all these soul greats. Yeah, and, um, of course. And yeah, so we, so in, in our schooling, we had, we're lucky enough to have Sam Lyndon Smith as our music teacher. And he was a bit of a, you know, rebel, um, Steiner teacher, I guess, because yeah. he wanted to bring in, you know, electric guitars and band instruments. And mm. so he kind of got us going. He, you know, Josh has obviously got an amazing voice and he, he had that. So, um, Sam was that's really brought Josh under his wing and um taught him the harmonica as well, which was the, oh, uh, the mouth harp, which is which is of course a blue, classic blues thing. And mm. and you know, just really kind of taught us our first set of chords, like you know, taught me a lot of those, you know, seven chords that just really are just absolutely classic soul riffs and just a few little things that just kind of just steered us in this direction of this type of music. And we kind of haven't really been able to get away from it now we just we're like we just love it <laughs> although you have a bit yeah. haven't you in a yeah. way your own style that has come through in your own in cycles that's it. i listen to cycles and the style isn't there it's a very different style well i think on top of that i was also very we're also very influenced by i guess is that era in general and you know pink floyd you know even the stones and the way you know they kind of bring that soul element but they they do a lot of you know it, it gets a little bit more poppy and can be progressive as well. They're just the intermingling of them playing with the Beatles and them playing with blue that blues artists. Then mm-hmm. then there's musicians from, you know, Pink Floyd. Just like the collaboration of, of all these artists from across across the pond, as as you guys say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's a beautiful thing. So when we think about what our influences are, we're sort of more like, wow, this is 
it's that whole time with just like there's so much music that just complements each other that's that can be very different but very much the same mm. at the same time so i think a lot of that progressive stuff all kind of comes from the same area and it's a great country to be in yeah. if you're in a band i think australia uh, although i haven't been yeah. there for many many years i haven't been there since the 80s i have to say which is uh you know, before you were born yeah that makes you feel <laughs> old four times i've been around australia touring and uh, yeah had a brilliant time and it, it, it's all those I hope they've still got them, all the RSL clubs, and then there's loads of independent clubs. And Yeah. We were playing two shows a night quite often. Yeah. It's what first introduced me to cocaine. I know that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear, yeah. We're lucky these days. I think the music industry has, has cleaned up a lot, you know. It's, mm, yeah. Um, our touring life is um, yeah, very different. Well, me and Josh both have families. That was yeah, cool. We kind of were touring in this sort of way that um, – that supports that as well. So we're only doing two shows a week, really, two to three shows a week. Yeah. And then the rest of the week we have off, we can have some time to um, spend with the families, travel with the families. Mm-hmm. So it's been a um, kind of a cool road, like doing things in the uh, the typical way, like doing you know 25 shows in 27 days type thing, you know, <laughs> like just mad touring. Yeah. And then realizing, ah, like, and then we'll be away for a month and then we'll be back for two weeks and then away for another month and then back for a, three weeks and then away for another one mm. and it was just it just didn't suit the family lifestyle it's like when you come home for a week or two weeks you need a week to adjust and then then you need a week to adjust got leaving again <laughs> so so it's kind of like you just we found ourselves just coming home to our families and we're just kind of a mess really like you know just just um they're like what's going on just stay on the road. Just, <laughs> no just way. go. I Don't know, come yeah. back. You know, like, um, <laughs> but of course, you then know, you're on the road. Get... You're on stage, and you're yeah. not really enjoying it because you're churning out another yeah. show and another show. When we toured Australia, we had a roadie called Swampy, which is a good name for a roadie. Yeah. Oh, great. And, uh, yeah. He was he was a, a big Aussie guy, but he toured for twelve years with Status Quo. Oh right. Wow. It was only after his third heart attack that he decided it was time to stop. So he then did a gentle tour with us. But he was an amazing man. He was saying that, for example, Status Quo would do shows, they don't even remember doing them because they were so drugged up. And yeah. Even things like, yeah. I know that Francis Rossi, he says in his autobiography that he doesn't remember doing Live Aid. Right, wow. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, terrible. Yeah, we're very fortunate to be at this time, I think, where we can kind of see that from, from the um, parson and not be influenced to to recreate that but to, to mm. see it as a as a thing and we've we've been through that where we where we have like i think i think our vice is probably drinking and it's hard to avoid that um mm-hmm. on on the road as well of course because you, you rock into a band room and you've got a fridge full of beer and yeah. and whiskey and wine and you've got nothing but time to just mm-hmm. wait and um and oh, i'll have a drink you know here we go so kind of giving yourselves rules around drinking you know you know on those big runs you would you would just get into a cycle where you'd you get to the venue, you'd start drinking, you'll wake up, feel hungover, drive to the next venue, trying to recover, and then start <laughs> drinking again because it's easier way to recover. You know, it's like this, it's this cycle that, a vicious cycle that it's, that's not great. And you notice yourself getting very tolerant of that alcohol. And, and, and yeah, the shows, because you're just doing the same thing every day, you're not putting the same energy and life into each show. You're sort of, it's, it's Groundhog Day where you just, you're just like, okay, here we go again. And mm. you sort of, you lose it and you forget where you are, you forget what city you're in, all these sort of things. Whereas the way we're doing it now, I think is, um, it's, it's great because we, we can spend, if we want the whole week in that city, mm. really get to know it and then play a show in this, in the city that you're in, 
it's really cool, you know, like, yeah, yeah. um, and I think, yeah, we'd definitely want to continue to tour like this. And, and I, I myself have kind of noticed that it's really important that I have limits around my drinking around playing. You mm-hmm. know, I always have a, you know, a pint and a couple of whiskeys maybe beforehand and that's lovely, but I'm trying to not let myself have a drink when I come off stage. If I can not drink when I come off stage, then I can enjoy the rest of my night. Whereas if I have that one drink fueled with the excitement of coming off stage, you kind of lack the self-control to, to know how to mediate yourself. And it can be, it can be dangerous because you have one drink and then with the excitement, you just, you just want to keep drinking and everyone else is drinking around you. And then you go out and then before you know it, you're wearing yourself out Mm -hmm. when you're not even playing a show, you're not even working anymore. You're sort of just, you're just trying to keep that excitement going for as long as you can. I watched you playing at the Melbourne Arts Centre yeah, with the full orchestra, and that was just fantastic, mind-blowing, brilliant. That. Yeah, it is, it, is, it is amazing to play with it. You know, like an orchestra like that is phenomenal. It's, um, it's a very interesting thing as well. You know, like we tend to find ourselves as very loose musicians. We, we go with the flow a lot. You know, we can jam out a bit longer. We can do that here. But yeah. we're playing with an orchestra. Um, all of a sudden, you have to question, oh, actually, we need to keep the bar length exactly the same. Yeah, or, or, or give the conductor the cue that we're that we're we've gone into a jam. <laughs> yeah, um, or Josh has forgot to come in with the vocals. You know, so yeah, he, you know, he, we will we'll be just vamping and doing the stole thing. You know, it's just like you know, we'll play quietly. Josh is chatting, doing a thing. We'll be playing until we hear that first vocal line. We don't start the bars, whereas whereas the yeah. orchestra, it's it's a it's an interesting beast to kind of navigate. You know, he's. He's got to, the conductor's got to look over and say, oh, now this is the top of the page now. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and so we're always having to question ourselves while we're playing. We're like, oh, okay, right. Um, better not get too crazy here. You know? They're all playing to music, aren't they? In front yeah, of they're all playing to okay. sheet music. So, so it's really interesting. It's a very interesting thing. I've performed in that venue, which is really weird. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah long, it's awesome. A long, long yeah. time ago, we did a charity gig there. You know, men at work and uh, yeah. in excess. Wow. Yeah, some amazing people on the a crowded house. It's just yeah. incredible. And, of course, these are big shows. These, are, yeah. You know, you're selling out all over these places. These are great venues you're playing. Yeah, we're stoked. I'm, I'm like amazed. Uh, you know, the Hammersmith Apollo tomorrow. Yeah. So that's sold out, and that's um, – I was kind of mind-blowing every time we kind of think <laughs> about that, and we're kind of like, wow. It's, um, every time we rock into a venue, I think, oh, God – and because we've been in hiatus for the last few years, of course, like um, mm-hmm. like everyone has, <laughs> yeah. um, it's kind of phenomenal to come back overseas and be like, oh, wow, but people still, still want to see us. People still want to come to shows. And mm. and what seems is like people are more thirsty for it rather than um, we thought, oh, it's just going to kind of die away and, you know, we'll see maybe there's still some, we'll have to rebuild the fan base up overseas because we haven't been there for yeah, so long. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's been amazing to see that it's quite the opposite. Yeah, it's really kind of picked up, which is which is really exciting. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Okay, but I won't keep you too long because it's um it's unfair if you've got to get ready for a show. Oh yeah, it's all you'll have a couple of beers and a couple of whiskeys before yeah. you go on. I'm just eyeing off this old English pub that's sitting right in front of us. So I was like, <laughs> I'm thinking, this is the this is the thing. It's dangerous around here in England because we, <laughs> we just have a real soft spot for these all these. And then the pull tap beers, like I always make jokes about it, you know, like how disappointed I am that the beer is, you know, warm and flat, um, <laughs> but I love it, I, you know, and I always yeah. go back and get give myself a, a pint of pull tap beer, try all the different ales and all the different um, towns. So it's, it's lovely. Yeah. Me and Josh both get very excited when we walk past a nice pub where we're, we're going to go in there and, and have, a, have a proper pint. 
Lovely. Lovely. So let's talk about the things you're going to put into a time capsule. All right. Yeah. So, of course, my family was up there first. I'm like, well, that's almost my five objects right there. But I thought maybe I could put them in one thing together yeah. and I'll bring them all with me mm -hmm. as one thing, hopefully. Yeah, no, that's fine. So I've got a um, two-year-old. Oh, brilliant. She's um, very cute, very cute age. And I've got an eight-year-old mm -hmm. and he's um, he's great. And they still have a very brother-sisterly relationship, but um, he's also quite a good big brother. So mm -hmm. really, um, really <laughs> yeah. they test each other a lot. But um, <laughs> we thought that maybe we wouldn't have that sibling thing because they were so far apart. But but they're definitely siblings and they, they definitely uh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Get, get out of each other for sure. And he's had a long time on his own as well. He would have a long time ruling the roost. That's it. And so he can really stir her up, but then she can really stir him up too so they they um <laughs> he, she she gets very bossy like she's she definitely tells him <laughs> what's what and um she can be very dominant so i, I do say to Ethel, he needs to he needs to be careful because she just knows how to get you so so watch out <laughs> lovely do you still live in melbourne well we've actually just moved in the last couple of years up to the northern rivers oh so we've been living in a little town called mullumbimby outside of byron bay oh lovely which we love it up there yeah mm. we um a lot of friends moved up there like over the last few years and um mm -hmm. and also know a lot of people up there a lot of our friends already live up there so we just thought, well, why aren't we just up here? You know, we, we stayed up there for a, a few months just visiting and, and then we decided uh, we, we drove back down to Melbourne, packed a trailer mm. and drove up and tried to get a rental. <laughs> and we, yeah, that's the only way. It was really hard finding rental properties up there. It's always like a big um, bit of a rental crisis mm. up there because everyone wants to move up there. But we, yeah, that's the only way to do it, I think, is, is just fill a trailer and commit and go. So we just... Yeah, we just packed all the things that we wanted to bring, much like what I'm doing here with the time capsule, you know. Yeah. We just packed all our favorite things, put them in a trailer, and then, you know, found ourselves a nice little house up there, which we've actually now said goodbye to because we've just come overseas. We're going to be on tour for a year, so oh. so we just thought well, there's no point in having a rental property. But you've got a studio there as well, haven't you? Uh, well, so the studio, um, the album sort of, features the studio a lot because because it's mm. actually a thing we recently said goodbye to and that was what kind of pushed our move up north i think the studio was something that was tying me to melbourne and then the building got sold um as well after we we rent, rented it for many years maybe 10 years mm. off our parents who eventually decided they wanted to sell it you know um we tried to keep the house for as long as we could because um i built the studio underneath and i was born in the house so mm. um and like a home birth. And then my son, Ethel, my eight-year-old, he was also born in the house. Oh, wow. And then Josh lived there also in the bungalow and, and moved back there with his soon-to-be family. And our two kids were both born in the house as well. Right. So it's kind of this this house had this as this kind of beautiful history for us and we kind of held onto it for a lot of, as long as we could. And, you know, we, of course, grew up there and we birthed many albums there. That's where we did all our recording. So this is the first album that we have done outside of that studio. And Cycles, my solo record, was the last one right. we did there. And moving on to a new studio, does that mean you've gone digital? Because I, I have to say um, I loved watching you working with the sort of 32 track. Is it 32 or 16 yeah, track? Yeah, it's a 24 track. There we are, in between. On acetate, isn't it? Yeah, so we, we have to try and treat it like a, you know, when you start recording, treat it like an eight track mm -hmm. do you try and get all your first pieces down so that means that means recording your whole drum kit 
and maybe the bass as well on one track. Right. Because then you just set yourself up for a good start of the album because you're like, well, maybe give yourself two tracks for the drums and the bass together. Mm -hmm. So you get that mix right and done. I think this is the, this is my key to recording to tape. And that is why it is so good to record to tape. I think not because of the sound quality of the tape, these old things all help. But the main thing is giving yourself the limitations to commit to mixes and sounds in the moment while the magical juices are flowing mm. with the recording. I think it's the crucial part to making an album is eliminating those choices. Yeah, you have to have a discipline, don't you? Yeah, that's it. There's no limits to digital stuff. You can have as yeah. many tracks as you like. That's it. So you could put every yeah. single drum, every single cymbal, everything on a different track. Yeah, you start to question, I can do that better. Mm. And you try and you try and you try. And sometimes you'll end up with the first one. Sometimes you'll end up with a mix of 10 different vocal takes yeah. or something like that, you know, mm. and you listen to it afterwards or later on, you're like, oh, it just doesn't have the same life. It's, no, no. So a lot of what we did in this last room, we went down that rabbit hole, but a lot of the record has, because we did, we did still record to a 24 track MCI tape machine. So it wasn't my personal tape machine, but it was also a very beautiful tape machine. Mm. And we were fortunate to have a beautiful 70s Neve console, 32 channels. Uh. Everything was um, clip pot. So it was all discrete preamps, like just, just the bee's knees of the Neve consoles, not one of those newer Neve consoles that, that um, because it has the name Neve. Mm. Um, everything was wired, like very discreet and just like beautiful signal path everywhere. It definitely had its quirks. Mm. Definitely um, a bit of a hit and a bump here and there to kind of get it working. <laughs> Brilliant. But when it did, it sung and it really sounded beautiful. Yeah. So a lot of the tracking we did, and we were fortunate because it was a much bigger space, so we could really push the live element a lot more where we brought the band into the room and, and we tried to record everything live and a few a few tracks that you would have heard. I don't know if you've heard the whole album, mm. but the we've released our first single, Oceans of Emotions, and that track was a song that we pretty much used the live take of. Brilliant. And live vocal take too. So this is a perfect example of the magic was there in the room when we recorded that first run to tape and the song went through a lot of changes and then it finally hit like a pocket of like, we just changed the drum groove and Josh's voice slipped into the perfect phrasing. Mm -hmm. It all came together. So we're like, it was the first or the second take that we used. I'm pretty sure it was the first one. And huh. um, we used the first take um, because I think later on the, the takes got mixed with the, with the labeling. We wish I was the good one, but we mm. picked one of those two takes and that was it. And then Josh was like, my voice was, it was at the end of the day because we'd just been working on the song like all day. And then we finally got that first recording and Josh say, like, I will have to redo the vocals because <laughs> my voice is really tired. Yeah. And then we're like, okay, yeah, cool. I was like, I think it's pretty, sounds pretty bloody nice. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how you're going to top that. And we tried, we tried to top it, but it just didn't, nothing worked, you know, like, and it was so the raspiness of his voice yeah. was sort of perfect. And then there was, of course, the, the technical element of Josh was singing in the room with the band. So, as soon as we pulled his vocal mic out, the drum sound changed. Like the elements of the music changed. Like mm. I'm a big believer in recording in that way, where it's you use every mic in the room. The piano mics are part of the drum mics. They just use them all together. Mm. You don't try and fight them and try and gate them or anything like that. You just you just like okay, well, there's too much drum spill into the piano, so you move the piano mic closer to the piano, <laughs> and then the resonance. The room, the roomy sound of the piano is filling into the drums, so, so it works perfectly. Like you work with it, and you have to do these things when recording to tape because 
you don't have the choice to go back. No. When you're recording live, you want to use those two tracks to start with. So you've got, you know, 22 channels to do overdubs and do all the things you want to do creatively later. So you want to just commit to those first two tracks and not have to redo it. So you've got to get those mic placements perfectly right yeah. to begin with. So I'm a huge believer in it has to be right to begin with. And so we had all those elements beautifully set out. The vocal mic sounded great with the drums. And so you press mute on the vocal mic. Not only does Josh's vocals spill into the drum mics and the piano mics and everywhere, Mm. So re-recording the vocal, he has to try and mimic yeah, he's got exactly to match what it. he played last time. He's going to match it. Mm. And that's a bad vibe in itself. You know, you're just not, it's not fun at no, all. It so, becomes a technical thing then. Yeah, exactly. And he can't close his eyes and just sing what he wants to sing. No. So it took us a very short amount of time to record this track, but then it also took us a very, very long time to record this track because <laughs> because we had the digital options. We were like, Let's go down the road and we will record, you know, like 10 vocal takes. We'll try, we'll try this, we'll try all these other stuff. And then realizing that we just need to fall back right to the beginning where we started. This was perfect just as yeah. is. And we yeah. just left it. We didn't really add too much more. We had it horns later and a bit of guitar stuff. And there was a high note that Josh wanted to put in the bridge as well. Right. So when he, Josh got his voice back, he, um, he, <laughs> he dropped it in. He dropped in the, um, he dropped in the, the voice. Brilliant. Um, to get those, those high punchy notes. Um, which is cool. There's a magic about those sort of things, though. Is there's yeah. a real, I mean, yeah. through the whole history of music, there's a magic about the fact that that's what they had to do. You had yeah. to do it. So, for example, John Lennon singing Twist and Shout. Yeah. He always said that, you know, my voice had gone. Yeah. That's why I was croaky. That's why it's so good. Yeah. You never choose to get that, maybe. So, like, it, it's sort of like one of those things where you're just like, you need to give yourself those limitations so that. You're stuck with it. You're stuck with that first take or you're mm. stuck with that weird drum spill because you hear it on all these old 60s recordings and all this. It has this particular sound that is so unique because mm. they probably didn't want to get that sound. There was probably just what happened because they had to record these all these elements together. Yeah. So we try and, and these days try and recreate those old sounds, but we've got these digital mediums that we can really, like, you can perfect it too much. Mm. You don't create anything unique because you can actually perfectly try and harness those old sounds and it then it just sounds weird it sounds like this um weird uh time capsule <laughs> where you preserve something from the past and you're trying to recreate it in the future and yeah. it's not it, it's not really it but but by having given yourselves these limitations of tape and these elements you actually come up with something new you create a new sound it's maybe not what you would be picking in the moment you mm. know it's 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 um it's just magic and i think that is the probably the key to tape it's it's a it's a magical sound it's like all these sort of things the way this way of recording it's about that it focuses on the magic rather than focusing on the technical yeah it needs to be this particular way we want it to sound exactly like this you just let the magic happen and it happens you could pull apart every scientific detail on why it sounds so good and try to recreate that digitally but it's you know, at the end of the day, it's just it's just magic. Yes, many people have tried and they've all failed. Yeah, you can spend your time doing doing something else, like writing more music, or spending time with your family. Yeah, that's before it. you put them into the time capsule. You see, that's right. There yeah, we are. Yeah. I don't know how we got to that, but that's what we're putting yeah. in, and that's what it yeah. led to. So that was the first thing. Yeah, your family, family goes yeah. in as the first thing, which I think we talked a lot about. The second thing that I put in the time capsule, mm. which was my tape machine. Ah. So um. That's why I bring the tape machine on, onto the time capsule because I feel like there's not any new um, tape machines being made or any, anything like that being made. So it's a pretty important one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. 
All right, so we've got your family and the tape machine in there. So what else? Okay, we have to leave Sam in his car outside the venue in Bristol for a moment for some advertising. But we'll be back before you can say a one, a two, a one, two, three. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Four, welcome back. If you'd rather have this podcast not interrupted by adverts, then for a small monthly fee, and you'll be surprised how small, you can subscribe to Acast Plus and get the podcast ad-free and sponsorship-free if you want to. Details in the description of this episode. Okay, back to Sam Teske to see what he'll choose next. And then I've got my guitar. So I, when I was 12 years old, I got my first electric guitar, which I was, me and Josh... We did a lot of busking when we were young, so we had the cute factor, you know, when we were mm-hmm. 12 and 13, and we made a lot of money, but, and, <laughs> and Josh's boys, because people, people would turn heads and be like, what the hell? Jesus. That kid is like, got this grungy blues voice. Hang on, it's Marvin is, Gaye. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, which is probably a, like, a, an octave higher back then, mm. you know, so people were like, whoa, it's, a, it's grungy, but it's high pitch. What's going on here, you know? <laughs> um, so people are like, oh, have we got any change? Yeah, they chuck, chuck it in there. So you get in your Ferrari and go home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're there. We were, we're there. Josh had a steel guitars, mm. um, so it was really loud in the uh, marketplaces. And um, his voice was loud. He, his harmonica, you know, cut through. Everything was sort of cut through. I, I um, had another like acoustic guitar that that I would sort of naturally fell into the place of. I would just always fill in licks in between Josh's voice and, mm. and um, that's just what I did. I just, you know, the younger brother was like, I want to join in too. And, and so I learned to play the guitar because that's what, you know, I felt it needed. So, yeah. but we saved up, you know, enough money to mod up our busking rigs when we were quite young. What were you singing? Um, Do you remember? Uh, a lot of old blues ones, like, you know, a lot of old Robert Johnson stuff. Um, a lot of the songs we were playing because we were so influenced by um, our you know, our teacher and all the old classics that, and our parents as well, you know, mm. like, you know, Percy Sledge would hear that record a lot, you know, when a man loves a woman <laughs> and the band, of course, lots of Pink Floyd mm-hmm. and, and, you know, a lot of, you know, all sorts of things that we would kind of hear through our folks record collection. And then we had our teacher that would also be like, Hey, have you heard, you know, Ernest Redding mm. and they heard, you know, Wilson Pickett, like Land of the Thousand Dances. And then of course, 
Wilson's picked version of Hey Jude, you know, like hear yeah. this. And then that led us down the rabbit hole of like, okay, well, who's that guitarist? It's like, that's just playing up against Wilson Pickett's amazing voice. There's this like cut through guitar. If you've heard that track, it's just like, what is that guitarist? Like, who's that playing? And I always just had in my head, it was just, it was just like, it was just a band. He was just that, he was just a guitarist from the band. Later, I found out that it was Dwayne Allman from the Allman Brothers. Mm. Then I'm listening to the Allman Brothers and, and <laughs> got sent down that road of, you know, like the band, Allman Brothers, Bob Dylan, all those guys. That was kind of a whole nother world to the soul, but still so similar. But, mm. you know, and then, then got really influenced from songwriting where, you know, of course, by Bob Dylan and Lenny Cohen and, and all, all these guys and, you know, working with Josh, you know, trying to simplify things back into like soul world. So, you know, going branching out into deep poetic world and then back into simple soul music, which is, which is beautifully poetic in the simplicity. Mm. Um, so you bought your electric guitar then finally. Yeah. So I got my electric guitar with the money that we had from all this busking and obviously at that time very influenced also by Jimi Hendrix mm. so I, I wanted the Stratocaster and actually um, Mark Knopfler was a big influence from that time right. as well when I was like 12 he playing with his fingers like I was very influenced by the, the soft tones that he got mm. um, and David Gilmore of course from Pink Floyd yeah. all played Strats and I was like these were, and, and uh, Steve Ray Vaughan as well like all these guitarists that I was like, yeah, I have to play a Strat. I have to get into this. I love that sound. And Eric Clapton, he played a Strat later. And I got onto it that older is better. That was my um, my thing. So I didn't have I didn't have a lot of money. So I couldn't get like, you know, a 70s no. Strat or anything like that. But I, I managed to find myself a vintage Strat on, on um, the trading post, which mm. we don't really have it these days. The trading post is, you know, the paper version it's where you buy old, like, you know, people sell things on the training post. Yeah, yeah. So I called this guy up and I was like, hey, I want to buy this this strat, you know, can I come around and have a look at it? And he's like, um, oh, not today. Um, it's the, <laughs> the weather's the weather's too hot. Um, I don't want to put it in the car. Um, it's, you know, he's, he's very precious with this with this strat. And um, it was a bit of a sad story. And mm. he, he kind of like, he was having to sell one of his, he had two guitars and he had to sell one of them because <sighs> he, he just moved back in with his parents. You know, oh. I think he was just going through a bit of a rough time. So, you know, I felt a bit bad taking off. But finally, we found a day with good weather. I could go around and try it out. And, um, you know, I had a bit of a play of it. You know, it was good enough for me. I was like, yeah, this is this is cool. Like, you know, mm. the price is right. And then he kind of didn't want to give it to me. He was sort of like one of those things. Like, oh, are you, are you sure? You know, like, okay. And then he's telling me, you know, don't wear a belt with it. You know, if you if you if you want to play it, like take your belt off you just scratch the back of it and it was in immaculate condition he it oh. felt like he'd kept it so beautiful and um so it looked like a new guitar even though it was um 25 years old or what whatnot yeah so basically you were witnessing the end of his dreams so that's right so i so i got that guitar it was a it was a yellow guitar it's um tv white it is actually because the yellow color shows up on a black and white screen as white right so they call it tv white <laughs> um so that's the color of the guitar and i've been playing that guitar i've you know played a few others but that guitar is um is the one i've always stuck to and that that one i've had since i was 12 and i'm still playing to this day and now i've decided i just want to play only that guitar mm. and I've, I've had some great um guitar I've had the pickups rewound mm -hmm. to be like 70s spec, like, you know, really nice pickups and all the frets redone and, and everything kind of put back to, so it's a, like, it's a more of a classic guitar 
because it was an 80s guitar. It had a lot of like um, funny little things like this rolling um, nut, which I changed because I use very heavy strings. So my heavy strings didn't fit through the rolling nut. Mm. So that's another part of the sound for me is, is um, like beefy strings. So I use 12 gauge. 12 gauge. Why do you use such heavy strings? It just sounds better. Right. It sounds like a thicker string. It actually literally sounds like a thicker string. You right. know, you, I guess it's just physics. Like, you know, when you play it, I just think it, you know, you can play one note and it sounds fat. You know, it's like, I think the, the gauge of the strings, I think, is something that is always so overlooked in people trying to, you know, get guitar tones and sounds. People mm-hmm. might get like, you know, 10 pedals that they're trying to get this tone right. You know, they're doing these different guitar amps and modding their, their, their valves in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. And I'm trying to make this guitar sound as fat as possible by putting it through this many distortion pedals. But if you've got nine gauge strings, it's just never going to, it's just always going to flap. Mm. That's my theory anyway. And so a lot of people say, oh, I can't go up to like 12 gauge strings because, you know, it's too heavy to bend and to play. And, and the, the same in that way, you just, you just, you know, you start at, at lower gauge strings and, and then when you feel comfortable in that gauge, you just go up a gauge. Mm. And so I just have over the years, just gradually got up to 12s and, um, I've tried going higher, but the higher strings then we get to a point where the G string sounds a bit flappy right. and it, it doesn't sound good. It goes beyond. So for me, the best sounding strings are 12 gauge strings, mm. uh, 12 to 54s is what I use. And that's a big part of my sound, I think, because um, they're just much more dynamic. You can play them in mm. many different ways and your fingers just build the muscles to do it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like you just, that's right. I, 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 it just feels like to me, I'm playing nines again, you know, when I was, when I started or whatever, you know, I don't know if I ever played nines and, the guy who I bought it off, I wonder if he, he's ever seen the guitar anywhere or whatever, but it's like, um, you know, if he had a, he had seen this guitar now, I've played the shit out of this guitar. <laughs> and, and all of the frets are all kind of like being worn out. You mm. can you can look at my guitar, you can see you can see where he likes to play. And you can you can see it's got my imprint on it. And so <laughs> And you've never um, worn a belt. I always wear a belt oh. when I play my guitar. <laughs> and the back is scratched. You know, there's there's nicks and bumps all over it. There's, yep. you know, nicks in the headstock. There's, you know, I'm very slowly starting to wear a patch where my arm sits on the on the guitar. So I love that in a guitar with a guitarist exactly. who's had a guitar for a long time. The yeah. fact that it is theirs is quite unique. I once sat in a dressing room and uh, Brian May showed me the guitar that his father made him, which is, you know, is the guitar he likes wow. to play. And you look at it and you go, well, the, it's sort of part of the person. Yeah, it's it's, it's p- part of it. And, and you get so used to it. And I had, uh, we played in um, Paris at um, Bataclan, beautiful venue. Mm. And um, I think it was Tom's Guitar Shop. They make a point to come to the venue every time I was playing. And they bring all these beautiful old vintage guitars. Mm. And um, he was like, oh, well, you can play this Strat from, I think it was a 1965 Stratocaster. <laughs> and it was beautiful guitar. I could, you could definitely feel how the thing resonated and something about having a life for that long. And if it's been played and hasn't just been sitting in the shelf, mm. if, if someone's played that guitar their whole life, it has a whole energy about it. And so I, I sound checked a bit with that guitar. I was like, oh, this would be really nice to try out but i just you know it, it was too comfy for me to play my guitar I just it's it's your it's like a, an extension of yourself 
Yeah. And so I, I had to decline the offer to play this beautiful 1965 guitar on stage, but it was a beautiful guitar and it was, I was very, very humbled that, that, that he brought these guitars down for us to try out. Mm-hmm. But I always have to go back to my, to my strat that I, you know, that I've, um, I work. So that's what I would put in my time capsule that, that strat as well. Lovely. Um, that's three things then. Yeah. So we've got one more that you want to put in because you like it and one you want to put in there to forget. Oh, yes. The thing mm. to forget. Yes. Yeah, so one more I like. Oh, yeah. So, so something I'm loving at the moment is, um, especially on tour, we're on tour for a year. We have me and Josh. Well, Josh really got it first. He's got this, um, this fold up Brompton bike. I right. wish you would know. I guess I you would know, know yeah, the Bromptons yeah. over here. Then they're no, not as well known in Australia, but here you see them everywhere and you, you can see why because they're such amazing bikes. And so that bike that I've got comes with me everywhere. It comes on the plane. <laughs> it comes on the tour bus. So whenever I get to a city, a new city, first thing that comes out of the trailer is, is my bike. Mm-hmm. I unfold it and you go explore the city, Brilliant. go find the best pub. And have a pint. Um, <laughs> so it's like it's you just it's a, it's it's an extension of freedom. So you're just like you're free on the road, you know. Like it's, it means that you can, you know. Sometimes I ride from the airport. I'm like if it's a if it's a half an hour ride from the airport, yeah. I'm like, well, I'll just get on my bike and I'll ride into the city. It's like forced exercise as well. So. Yeah, and of course, in many cities, you're more likely to get there quicker on a bike than you will in a taxi. Yeah, that's 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 it yeah so it's a genius invention this how small it folds up and it's so lightweight isn't it and it and it's also kind of it's a, it's like a yes lightweight and it's and i've got a and you rack but on the back you can get all these all these mods to it like that you can put like different back bars and stuff like that so it has wheels on the top so when you flip it over it's got like trolley wheels so around airports and stuff like that you just you just you got your bag sitting on the front of the bike and you just wheel it around like a wheelie bag like mm. like an airport it's the perfect thing, and um, <laughs> and then then when when you get on a flight, you put it on, you put it, it fits in a big suitcase. So that is the best thing. But what I didn't like about it, putting it in the suitcases means that you have to then have a big suitcase with you. So when you're riding, you've got to carry a suitcase with you as well. So and you've always got to wait at the carousel, haven't you? Yeah, it's nothing better than arriving at an airport and just walking straight out with a bag in your hand. Oh yeah, oh, of course, yeah. So so I think in some places, I think in America potentially, you can actually bring their bike on the plane with you right like and put it in the overhead overhead lockers yeah i bet so it actually like it's um it's just phenomenal so you can literally jump off the plane and start riding yeah fantastic uh, so where does um, this world tour take you then apart from the world obviously you're touring for a year a whole year that's a long time isn't it yeah so we started in um we so well we're in europe we still we did a lot of europe Mm -hmm. and then uk we're here for five months just going all around europe and uk we go back and forth Mm. all over the place because we are setting up camp where we get we get a house with family, so yeah. so they can stay home or they can choose to come. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's important with family to have a you know base camp. Yeah. Um. My eight year olds, of course, he's he's got to do homeschooling and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so for him to have like um a place to just you know call home. What a brilliant experience for him, though. What a great thing to do at eight. Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. And um, so we so we're doing that for five months and then we're off to america mm-hmm. and doing similar thing in america we just set up camp somewhere and we'll fly and fly out mm. on this run it's awesome now i'm pretty much getting trains everywhere so i got my bike my guitar and just jumping on and off the train to yeah. get everywhere pretty much now right and our tour manager uh, jack is really supportive on like sort of green touring mm. so like trying to make touring a bit more sustainable so he's 
he's really supportive of me trying to get trains everywhere mm. and any way that we can do to sort of lower the impact of touring because it's huge it's a huge like all the flights if you're flying everywhere every gig it's just like it's just something you know we want to try and be aware of but mm. it's really hard to avoid of course like it's it's like we'd, we would do the best we can but it still takes a toll yeah um bound to and it mentally as well and physically flying takes a huge toll I hate flying. So it works out well to try and avoid those platforms. So America's going to be a bit harder. There's going to be a lot, lot more flying in America because... Um, well, it's huge. Yeah. It's it's a huge area and they don't have the train network like they do here in no, Europe. So No. So, um, and the Greyhound buses won't... It's not fast enough, is it really? So. Yeah, not fast enough. And, and yeah, you, can do, you can do maybe a night bus or something like that, but they always leave before the gigs finish. So mm. I've been trying to look at night trains as well, but they can never quite get these. Always have to just stay at the, <laughs> the yeah. venue. The bus is good. The tour bus is good because you, you can jump on the bus and it drives home through the night. But if it's a long drive, then you end up spending most of the day the next day driving too. So, mm. so yeah, that's that's the kind of like our style. And then once we've done the America tour, we're then going to do Australia for three months. Wow. So, so we'll kind of, we'll be more at home there in Australia, yeah. but we'll still kind of be a bit nomadic. I think we'll still kind of take on the same thing. And I think I've only just recently, like this year, learned that touring is a big thing and it's actually something that you don't have a lot of time doing. So I'm um, trying to limit the things that I do. So I, in the past, when I've done Australian tours, I've tried to do I've record other albums, to work for other uh, artists and do all sorts of other things and just kind of overworking myself with too many different things. So mm. this this year has been a good awakening for me to be thinking, oh, I'm just I'm on tour, yeah, and that's what I'm doing. Yeah, and treasure it, really, as well. Yeah, yeah. else I'm doing is like I go on a bike ride, you know, went, went for a bike ride through Richmond Deer Park mm. yesterday. Lovely. You know, got really interrupted by, you know, big deer going across the road. <laughs> it was just, you know, you know, awful day, you know, after that. And then I then the pub just had flat beer and, and uh, it was warm and, you know, warm and flat. And it was just, raining. Just terrible. Raining. Yeah, it was raining. Typical. Yeah. Take me back to Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, take it back to Melbourne, where Melbourne's not much better, really, I have to say, with the weather. No, very English in its weather, yeah. Yeah, very English, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, then what's what's the last... Oh, that was the last thing, wasn't it? The, yeah, was, so was just the bike. thing you want yeah. to put in and uh, forget about. Yeah, the thing that I want to put in and forget about. So, this took a while to think about. I was trying to think, what is it? And it's like, it was almost like a bit of a riddle. But the thing that stuck with me was like, well, something that, which might be you know strange to a lot of people, but finished music... Songs that have been done, <laughs> that have been finished, that's something I happily leave behind because once the song's done, you can let go of it. Mm. And I think for a songwriter and for an artist, like, is nothing more stifling for creative flow than having to continue working on stuff that's something that is, is already finished or is already complete. So do you feel a pressure then sometimes from fans to reproduce what you've done before? Because clearly you like to go out and perform how you feel at the time. But, yeah. But there must be a pressure. People say, well, that's not what you played before. That's not what you played on the album. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, fortunately, like I get away with it, you mm. know, with, with my guitar noodling, like I very <laughs> rarely, I very rarely play the same thing as I did on the album. Yeah. And it's always an improvisation for me. And I'm fortunate that way. Mm. I think Josh, Josh enjoys a lot, you know, playing things because I think he's, you know, his voice is I mean, it's a whole nother beast just to sort of like be the front man and like to hold that energy on stage. Mm. It's a huge, huge thing. And I think every gig you can, with the same song, you can do it so differently every time. You can master it every night. You mm. know, every night you play, you 
you can master it and, and do it better. So so we, we get by with playing live the same songs. But yeah, just every time you play it, you just want to make it more interesting, master it more. And there's some songs that I definitely would like to bury and just be like, <laughs> okay, done with that now. Yeah. But it's not, it wouldn't work. You know, people want to hear it still. And, yeah, and of yeah. course, to be fair, a lot of people coming to gigs, it might be their first time coming to the gig and they want to hear this song live. Mm. We might have played it a hundred times or more, but for everyone in the audience, it's their moment. Particularly touring like you are. Yeah. They say, well, I've heard this, but I've only ever heard it on record. On record, yeah. So I want to hear it live. So for me, it's like you have to you have to be a little bit selfless and then, mm. and be like, okay, it's for this group of people in the audience it's like how do we draw them in it's their moment we're we're giving to them at the moment so yeah what do they want to hear they want to hear this and we're going to put all of our love and energy into this even though we might be a bit stick of the song we're here to do this for this audience and we are rewarded for that we we get a return and they they love it they cheer they sing along mm-hmm. and that makes us feel great so it's a, it's an exchange so i was like yes we might push ourselves to to play these songs that we played a million times before you know, the energy is given back to us, yeah. you know, twofold by the response. So it's a very powerful experience and it's amazing. But I, I guess I, I speak more about like leaving songs behind more in the sense of songwriting, you know, like I have about, you know, couldn't count, but hundreds of unfinished songs, <laughs> hundreds of them. And so when, whenever I'm finishing an album, so when we're doing the mix and the mastering and promoting this album, my songwriting type kind of switches off because so much energy is going into releasing this album, getting it out to the world. Mm. So once it's out in the world, I'm pretty happy for it to just stay there. Yeah. And and I'll take all my new ideas that I haven't finished yet in the time capsule, all the unfinished songs, and spend my days working on them. And as soon as I let go of a song, a new song comes in. You know, it's like this, it's just this the creative basket. Yeah. You know, you have a basket full of ideas. And you can pick one of those ideas out of the hat that you've come up with in some weird place in, in some weird part of the world. Mm. You came up with that idea. Like, oh, what can I do with that song? And then all of a sudden it gets formed into a full song. And then you go, let it go. And it flies away. <laughs> and all of a sudden there's all this room in the basket for then like, and then it, it's, it's almost like, it's like clockwork. When an album gets released, like when this album gets released, I just, I know that all these ideas, song ideas are just going to flood to me. Like, I, I think I haven't written a song in, you know, all year pretty much. Mm. I, I haven't written anything. And I'm like, fuck, you know, what have I forgotten how to write songs? No, I've just I've just got a full basket at the moment. Yes. And we've got all these songs that we're hoarding and we're about to release. And once they're released, all of a sudden the ideas will come again. You've got space, yeah. There's plenty of space for it. Brilliant. But it's just it's just the simple physics, I think, you know, songwriting. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Sam, that's a brilliant time capsule. I make it big enough. Obviously, you can go in there and move around. You can have a little cycle around on your bike as well. You know, so it's it's all yeah. in there and a room to put finished music that goes in there, and you can shut the door and lock it. Yeah, and that's gone. Yeah, enjoy touring. I'd love to come and see you live. Have fun in London and all over the place. Where, where else are you going? You go Newcastle, yeah. Oxford, Cambridge, brilliant places. Yeah, You'll have a lovely time. And these are great places to cycle around as well. I have to say. Oh yeah. And I saw a documentary the other night with Mick Jagger talking. In about uh, about 1970, I think. Yeah. And he was being interviewed, and they said, "How long do you think you can keep doing this? You know, touring these shows?" And he said, "He said, well, you know, I mean, uh, I'm getting on now, so I, I can't keep doing this forever." Yeah. But um, turns out you can. Yeah. So uh, I hope there are many more to come. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Great chatting to you. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely talking to you. 
I better get to sound check. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just had my tour manager just call me just now, actually. He's like, where, where are you? Where the bloody hell are What are you talking about? Get off that phone. I'm having a conversation about music. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? Here he is now. He's, he's coming to get me. All right. Have a great time. I'll see you later. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Sam Teske. Good on you, mate. Anyway, thanks for listening, and as Sam might say, you can subscribe, rate, and review. Follow the two of us on the socials you view. Hear the theme song. Just give it a try. Cause it's not too long, it's on Spotify. And if you please thank past the peas and John Fenton Stevens, he created the blast of through our company cast of. He's a bit of a god, he produced this part. But now I must fly, 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 fly. And so, bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.